So as we get started, I want us to, uh, to pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you uh, for the country that you built uh, here called the United States of America. We thank you uh, for all that you've given us. We thank you that you give us the freedom to be free. Um, Lord, we thank you uh, for all those who uh, sacrificed everything, for those that declared in the beginning uh, our freedom and our independence. Uh, Lord, we thank you for their convictions. We thank you for who they were. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we get to be free today in this great country uh, because uh, of them. And, Lord, we thank you for our statehood as Texas. And we thank you for those that sacrificed for it as well. Uh, Lord, as we preach your word today, I pray that uh, you would use me to your glory. I pray, Lord, that if anything is said that is not of you, uh, you would help it to be quickly forgotten. And Lord, I pray today that if anything is said that is from you, uh, that you, it would remain and that those who hear it today uh, would, would hear it uh, with an open mind and would hear it, Lord, uh, with a heart towards you. And I pray that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, by March 5th, 1836, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel William Barrett Travis had known for several days that hope inside the Alamo was waning. Between February 23rd and March 3rd, Travis penned a number of pleas for help and sent them via courier during the situation. He described it, and in his most famous letter, penned on February the 24th, that letter arguably is the most famous letter in Texas history and is located in the Texas State Library and Archives in Austin. The last sentence of that letter reads, if this call, meaning the call for help, is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. And he signed it, victory or death, William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel, Command. P.S., the Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and gotten to walls 20 or 30 head of beeves. Travis. A legend has it that while holding out on March 6, 1836, Travis gathered his fellow defenders and gave them a speech. We must die. Our business is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives, but choose the manner of our death. Uh, Travis then drew his sword and he marked a line in the dirt. I now want every man who is determined to stay here and die with me to come across this line. A few made their decisions quickly and jumped over the line. In the end, all but two of them walked over the line. Jim Bowie, lying sick in a cot, asked the men to carry him across. And they did. The last man standing, Lewis Moses Rose, remained behind. Later that night, Rose escaped and managed to make it through enemy lines. Now every proud Texan knows what happened at the Alamo on March 6, 1836. 
And while we are not certain of the legend, we are certain that this powerful story clearly represents the sentiment from Travis's most famous letter. This story, we know, whether legend or truth, has given us a powerful and enduring metaphor. The line in the sand. And that metaphor comes with a powerful and important principle. And that is this, that courageous decisions often come with a high price. And so as we look at our scripture passage today, we're going to see that Jesus drew a line in the sand, so to speak, and he called his disciples to make a courageous decision. We're also going to see that Jesus' line in the sand still stands, and that he's calling us to make the same courageous decision. Now, this passage of Scripture is one of those that, when taken out of context, can create difficult interpretive problems. So I want to be sure today that we are careful not to decouple the words from the text and from the overall context. And so let me set the scene. A crowd of thousands had gathered, along with the disciples, to hear Jesus teach. The Pharisees were trying to trip him up so that they might accuse him... And Luke tells us that the crowd was trampling one another and that Jesus began to speak first to his disciples about hypocrisy and the judgment of God. Specifically, that the judgment of the eternal is more important than the earthly. Then a person in the crowd raises his hand and asks an airheaded question. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been asked an airheaded question? Or have you ever asked an airheaded question? What do you do when someone asks an off-the-subject kind of question? Well, right about the time Jesus begins teaching about the importance of God's eternal judgment, he is asked to arbitrate a conflict between a man and his brother over their earthly inheritance. Notice Jesus' response. Man... Who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? What is the assumed response? No one. Jesus continues to teach them three principles through three parables in the rest of this chapter about God's eternal judgments. Now, the first thing he teaches them is that it is foolish to store up treasure on earth without being rich toward God. Because you never know when you're going to die. The second thing he teaches them is that it is foolish to worry about the things of this life because God has graciously given us his kingdom. Thirdly, he teaches them that it is foolish to be a servant who is not ready for their master because the master will judge the extent to which the servant does his will. And so as we see in this chapter, hypocrisy and eternal judgment of God is the context through which we come to Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. Read along with me if you've got your Bibles open. Where Jesus says first to his disciples, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against another, three against two, and two against three. 
They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He then said to the crowd, when you see a crowd rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does, and the south wind blows, and you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Your adversary may drag you to the judge, and the judge may turn you over to the officer, and the officer may throw you into prison, and I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Notice here that Jesus continues to talk about judgment. I've come to bring fire on the earth is a statement about judgment. Knowing the weather but not the times is a statement about their ability to judge. The call to judge what is right is a statement about judgment. Now generally, we don't have much of a problem accepting most of the teachings of Jesus. We see the teaching of Jesus, we readily embrace them, and we see them as good and godly. And while the Pharisees were fiercely opposing him, the disciples and the crowd around him were trying to understand him. But in our passage today, Jesus has one last thing to say about the judgment of God. And it is here that the crowd then, and us here today, must come to grips with Jesus lying in the sand. Here we come face to face with the other side of Jesus. The side that's not so popular. The side that makes us uneasy. The Jesus that came to bring judgment. But didn't Jesus come to save the world and not judge the world? Well, as we break down this passage today, let's make some observations about Jesus' statement. I've come to bring fire on the earth, Jesus says. Jesus tells us about a fire that he has come to bring to earth. And in this passage, the fire Jesus is speaking of clearly represents judgment. Now, fire can have different nuances in Scripture, but it most commonly speaks of judgment. And while Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, his ministry also resulted in the judgment of those who reject him. William Barclay states... In Jewish thought, fire is almost always the symbol of judgment. However much we may wish to eliminate the element of judgment from the message of Jesus, it remains stubbornly and unalterably there. In other places, though, Scripture teaches us that the results of Jesus' coming would one day include judgment. John the Baptist made it clear that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire and that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he's... And he will clear his uh, threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Remember when Paul was at Cornelius' house, he describes Jesus as the one who came to judge the quick and the dead. Now notice something else about the fire, though. It has not yet been kindled. 
This means that its fulfillment is future from the time that Jesus spoke these words. Uh, Jesus' first incarnation didn't start the fire. But in his first incarnation, Jesus knew that he would one day judge the quick and the dead. Another important observation we can make is that something is holding back this judgment of Jesus. Jesus says this, he says, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Jesus says that his judgment is constrained by the baptism that he must undergo. The Greek word for constrained is sunexo, which means to hold together. It means to bind together, to hold fast, as in holding a prisoner captive. In the passive, it means to be held by. And here, it's in the passive. It is often used of being afflicted with an illness. The idea here is that Jesus, while coming to judge, was held back by this baptism. Now, what is this baptism he's talking about? Almost all commentators agree that this baptism refers to the cross through which Jesus would take upon himself the sin of the whole world. We know this is necessary because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that his judgment was controlled by the necessity of the cross. When I was growing up, we used to visit my grandparents in Lenore City, Tennessee. While we were there, we would walk across the street to see my Uncle Bill. And my Uncle Bill would take my brother and I crappie fishing, otherwise known as crappie fishing in Tennessee. He'd take us below the Fort Loudon Dam on the tailwaters of the dam. And I remember as a little boy thinking to myself, what if that dam breaks? Now, we would usually catch enough fish to keep our minds off the dam. We'd catch 30 or 50 crappie. We'd take them home and cook them. But I always wondered, what if that dam breaks? Now, I really, I really didn't think it would break. But I knew it could. Theoretically. And while in theory it could, there were forces within it that kept it from breaking. And so even though Jesus makes clear that his judgment is part of his coming, God's nature, God's character, and especially God's perfect plan kept Jesus' judgment from coming until the cross. You see, God in his perfect plan didn't choose to send Jesus to bring upon us the fiery judgment of sin without providing first for the forgiveness of sin. If so, it would have violated God's mercy and love. And at the same time, God would never ignore sin and just declare us all okay. You know, like, I'm okay, you're okay, we're, we're, we're all okay. This would violate God's holiness and his justice. But because God is holy and just and merciful and loving, and because we are not okay, 
He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to take upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve. Jesus was constrained by the cross. And oh, how thankful I am that he was. Amen? Now, the second thing we're going to see in our passage today is that Jesus did not come to usher in a kingdom peace. In ancient Israel, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would defeat her enemies and bring this golden age of peace in. Almost 1,500 years prior to the birth of Jesus, God would use the prophets to give Israel an understanding of the Messiah's coming life and ministry. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 declares that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And some years ago, Walt Kaiser, former academic dean at Trinity Evangelical Theological Seminary and former president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, had the opportunity to have a debate with a Jewish New Testament scholar around the question, Is Jesus the Messiah? The rabbi explained the Jewish point of view. Evangelicals believe that the Messiah has two comings, one at Christmas and one at his second coming. We Jews believe he will only come once at a time of peace on earth, just as the prophet Zechariah declared in Zechariah 12 through 14. Since we still experience wars, he said, Messiah has not yet come. Walt responded, it says in Zechariah 12.10 that they will look on me. Who is the one speaking here? The rabbi replied, the Almighty, of course. Walt responded, it says they will look on me, the one they have pierced. How did he get pierced? He answered that he did not know. Walt said, I have an idea. It was Calvary. The rabbi did not counter with any further argument. You see, while Jews in the day had reason to believe in kingdom peace, Jesus makes sure that all who would listen knew that the cross would not bring peace for everyone. In fact, the cross is the line in the sand for everyone who must make a courageous decision. The divisions caused by the cross go deep even to the separation of family sometimes. But because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, because Jesus is God in the flesh, because Jesus paid the sacrifice for our sins, because Jesus is who He said He is, He is worthy of our untethered allegiance, our complete dedication, our most sincere decision to follow Him. We should note, That while our our allegiance to Jesus is more worthy than family ties, Jesus isn't calling us to create division in our families. Love and honor family members. Be kind and gracious, even if they are offensive to us. But if family members are offended by the gospel, we must be prepared to bear hostility And be graciously firm. Not everyone will love the message of the cross. Because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. It is the power 
of God. But should we just ignore or write off family members who divide with us over the cross? Should we? Absolutely not. Instead, we should be fervently praying for them. Pray that God, through his spirit, would show them the truth of the gospel and that they would believe. Many of you have been praying for family members. Some of you have been praying for family members for years. Keep praying. Keep the conversation going. And keep loving them. Most of all, keep praying for them and keep loving them. Keep showing them the love of Christ. So we've seen today that Jesus' judgment was constrained by the cross. We've seen that he did not come to usher in a kind of kingdom peace. But finally, I want us to see that Jesus intended to force those confronted by him to make a decision about him. Let's review again what Jesus says in Luke 12, verses 54 through 59. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It is going to rain, and it does. And the south wind blows, and you say, It's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Know the times, Jesus says to them. Know the times. The Messiah is here. And my friends, we need to know our times. You see, in Israel... A cloud forming from the west came from the Mediterranean Sea, and it brought rain. A south wind from the Sinai Desert meant a hot day was on its way. And these people could discern the weather, but they failed to discern the importance of Jesus' presence with them. The point is, if we hear that the Son of God has come bringing salvation to all who believe, but judgment to all who ignore the message, should we not respond? By believing in him? But notice then what he says. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge. And the judge will turn you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. The assumption here is that there is an unfavorable case against us. If we understand that in an unfavorable case, we should do everything we can to settle, how much more quickly should we settle God's case against us? You see, when Jesus asks the crowd to judge for themselves what is right, he is calling them to evaluate his claims over and against the claims of the Pharisees. And he's made clear here that the Pharisees have it wrong when he says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. See, we can see that Jesus is applying this analogy spiritually. What he's saying to us is this. You make the call between the way of the Pharisees or my way. But know that I've drawn a line in the sand in front of you. Walk across the line. My friends, Jesus is calling us to come to his side of the line. 
And the fact is this, that God has a case against every one of us, and it is unfavorable. If we discern our times, we would know that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. It is here today. And there is no promise that it will be here tomorrow. See, Jesus' judgment was constrained by the cross. But his judgment today is no longer constrained because we're living on the other side of the cross. So is there anything constraining Jesus' judgment today? In essence, we could say no. But Peter gives us a little clue about something that might be. Peter says this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is God's patience and it is his desire for all to come to repentance that is constraining Jesus' judgment. And my friends, he will come. To judge the quick and the dead. And so today as we find ourselves on the other side of the cross. Let us remember that there still remains a line in the sand for each one of us to cross. Let it be said that we would make the courageous decision to trust Christ. And to walk across to his side of the line. Let us pray. Lord God, as we read our passage today, it's a difficult one to think about the judgment that will be coming. That Christ will come as King of kings and Lord of lords to judge the quick and the dead. That at his second coming, it will not be like his first coming. And Lord, how thankful we are that as the church, we don't have to be fearful. Uh, But Lord, we can be confident That today, as we have trusted in you, that you've died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. That today, we can call you Father. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that even when we see these difficult passages, that, Lord, they are a call again for us to renew. To renew our faith in the covenant that you have made with us. So, Lord, I pray today that if anybody here today and they haven't made that decision to walk across the line, Lord, they haven't made that courageous decision to come to Christ's side, that, Lord, I pray today that they would hear his call. The call that says, I love you. I died for you. I rose again from the dead to prove that I am who I said I was. And that you are invited to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Lord God, thank you for that opportunity that we have today. Thank you for the recognition that your kindness, your kindness holds off. Until, Lord, all who might come to repentance in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In all that we've discussed today, there's one thing I've left out. 
Remember what Jesus says in this chapter about you and about me. Five sparrows are sold for two pennies, and yet not one of them are forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worthy, worth more than many sparrows. Consider the ravens, Jesus said. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Consider the wildflowers, Jesus says. They do not labor or spin, yet not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. But that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you? My friends, you are valuable to God. You are so valuable that Jesus embraced the baptism of the cross. He completed it for you. And he completed it for me. So that we might have peace with God. We might have the most important peace that we'll ever have. And that's peace with him. Jesus did that through the covenant that he made with us. And so as we come today, let us recommit to this covenant. Let us confirm our continued trust and faith in Christ. This communion table that we come today, it isn't a wayside table. It's Christ's table instituted by Jesus for all who believe in him. My friends, my friends, you are so valuable to God. You're so valuable that God's judgment came upon Christ on the cross for your sins and for my sins. You're so valuable that God sent his one and only son to die, to die a tragic death so that you and I could come freely to God and call him Father. You are valuable to God. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus was eating in the upper room and he gathered his disciples together. And as they were eating their last meal, Jesus took some bread and he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And he said to them, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Then that very same night, Jesus took the cup and he took some wine and he poured it in the cup and said to them, this is the cup of my blood, the cup that would represent the covenant that I have with you. Take, drink for the forgiveness of sins. May we proclaim, may we proclaim 
the forgiveness of sins until Christ comes again.